Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we have some very exciting news. This is our first ever show for The Volume. We are unbelievably excited and proud and grateful to be a part of such an awesome podcast network and what a day it is for us to debut Logan because this is up there for the craziest night of basketball legitimately that I can remember and we'll talk about all of today's games we'll talk about yesterday's games as well but we have to start with the historic upset and the historic meltdown that was the heat the eight seed for the second consecutive game coming down from double digits in the fourth quarter to beat the Milwaukee Bucks Let's start with the Bucks angle on this. What's your reaction? I mean, I'm in utter disbelief that this happened, Carson. As you noted, a 16-point blown lead. They're going into the fourth quarter. They're up 102 to 86. Um, and the Bucks were firing on all cylinders at points in this game. 28 points on 12 straight possessions. On their first 46 possessions, they scored 66 points. I mean... Just like last game, it seemed like, oh, well, maybe we can write Miami off. It's just something that you cannot do at this point. Carson, I mean, to me, this is a complete (laughs) condemnation of Giannis Antetokounmpo as the best player on planet Mm -hmm. Earth. And in the fourth quarter, it looked like none of these Bucs players wanted the basketball. It looked like they were flat out scared. But, I mean, this was an absolutely abysmal from fourth uh, uh, fourth quarter from Giannis Antetokounmpo. And... The thing that I want to hammer home is, Carson, what's the one thing that sets historically great NBA players away from one another? It's when the game is on the line, when you need a guy to close out a game, he goes out there and he shuts the door. He slams the door emphatically. The Kevin Durant's of the world, the Kobe Bryant's, the Michael Jordan's, the LeBron James, they close the door emphatically. And 
you just cannot have the ball in Giannis Antetokounmpo's hands late. You cannot do it, dude. And this is where, when you have a guy like Bam Adebayo, credit to him, man. When you have a big, sturdy guy who's a really good defender on the low block, that's how you stop Giannis. You don't have answers for the greatest players on the planet. You don't have the answers for the Kobe's, for the MJ's, for the LeBron's. I mean, this is sad, dude. You have an answer for Giannis. You wall him up with a really good defensive big, and you force him to go to the line and beat you. Um, like, this is something that we talked about last episode after last game, Carson. Giannis has got to develop a bag. He has to have something that he can reliably go to in late-game scenarios because I do not want the ball in his hands late. I mean, that's a major, major flaw that will keep him out of being the best player on planet Earth. That's a major, major flaw in his game that the other best superstars in the game don't have. I want the ball in Chris Middleton's hands. I want the ball in Drew Holiday's hands. I don't want to give it to Giannis. I would rather have Giannis set me a screen than go downhill Mm -hmm. and get fouled and break some free throws, man. I mean, this this is what is separating Giannis from being, from us crowning Giannis as one of the best players on planet Earth. And this is one of the worst collapses I've ever seen on the other side of this, this is one of the best single-handed performances I've ever seen from one superstar in Jimmy Butler. But this is a complete um, and utter I, – I, I'm disappointed. This is a failure. I, mm-hmm. This is a guy that we said that I said was the best player on planet Earth. <laughs> I certainly don't feel that way after this series. I'm very disappointed in Giannis Antetokounmpo, and he has some major flaws in his game, dude. I don't know how you can not be disappointed after this performance. I certainly am disappointed, but I also don't at all put this singularly on Giannis. I think that this is a historic collapse on all fronts. Like, if you just look at the sequence in which the Bucks should have been putting the game on ice to have the ball nearly stolen out of the inbound when you're up one, all you need to do is get fouled. And then to go to the jump ball and nearly have a turnover out of that because Giannis is so petrified at the idea that he might be free shooting free throws that he throws a completely off-target pass to Chris Middleton, who's open probably eight feet away, to then a missed free throw, to then allowing the lob, which is really the most dangerous play in a situation where there's whatever it was, a second on the clock roughly, and then to not call the timeout with .6 seconds left when you have it is a mind-blowing gaffe, and then to ultimately lose this game in overtime, which again does fall on Giannis, by fouling a three-point shooter is just like the epitome of how you give a basketball game away. But I do think you're absolutely right. And what's partly so shocking to me is how much the Bucks insisted on running through Giannis late in this game. Because we know it's not the strength of his skill set. I actually think you can argue that he's the best player alive in spite of that fact. I don't think it's resoundingly clear at this point, but... After that title run, it was like, wow, this guy can reach an unbelievable level of dominance without having that traditional closer skill set. Middleton was able to take some of those responsibilities on. But in this game, a vast majority of the late possessions ran through Giannis, and it was abysmal. And I tweeted about this. I was like, man, I'm deeply concerned about the Bucs clutch offense, thinking this could come back to bite them. And it came back to bite them pretty darn fast, Logan. It was legitimately terrible. Giannis's insistence on either barreling his way into Bam and forcing a tough contested look or drawing a foul where he was three of nine on free throws during that final stretch or settling. I mean, he took this mid-range jumper with 90 seconds left and I thought, dude, 
My eyes are bloodshot right now. I was attributing it to Giannis taking that shot. It's a terrible clutch shot. It is the shot that everybody is begging you to take, Giannis. You're 36% for mid-range. A majority of those are wide open. And so the fact to me that they continue to insist upon, let's see what Giannis can get done. He was at 1.11 of 16 in this game, Logan, in the fourth quarter. And then next thing you knew, he was one of eight on his next eight shots with all those clanged free throws. So it was an abomination. I could not believe that they were not getting Middleton more touches because first of all, Middleton is a special contested shot maker. And so that's the kind of guy you want in those situations, period. But he's also a good playmaker. We also know that his pick and roll with Giannis can be a highly effective way to free up space for Giannis, to weaponize his athleticism. You trust Middleton as a playmaker there. If the read is I'm going to take my mid-range pull-up or the floater, well, he's great at that. But to just say we're going to try to win this game with brute force against a really good one-on-one defender when our best player is not going to succeed in these skilled shot-making areas of the game, I thought was baffling. But really, this was all-around humiliating. I think you have to take a hard look at Mike Budenholzer. This is a guy who obviously led them to a championship. It was a strange championship. A lot of it was, hey, we're the best healthy team. At this point, Giannis was superhuman. But I thought that his inability to get this team organized, his inability to develop any sort of offensive structure, his inability to coach them to excel situationally was humiliating. And I don't want to overreact to one game, but it's just there's a pattern with Bud. He's not a guy who excels in the playoffs. He's not the king of adjustments. He's not a brilliant coach schematically. And so... I think Giannis deserves a lot of blame. I think the fact that Drew Holiday isn't a high-level offensive creator is a legitimate problem here. He struggles as a shot maker. Playmaking is good, but at some point, you just need the guy who's going to go out there and put his throat on the opponent in the closing moments, and they didn't have that guy, and it was really shocking to see. On the flip side of this, though, we had superhuman Jimmy Butler, and we just talked... I mean, he's coming off a 56-point night. Now he comes out here, and he has this remarkable game to send it to overtime. He drops 42. I mean, how special historically is what we saw from him tonight? This is one of the greatest series I've ever seen played by an individual superstar, and that's not hyperbolic. I mean that, especially because, again, in the context of this, me and many other basketball experts, uh, my friend right here across the screen, This is the team that we picked to go to the NBA Finals. This is the team that we picked to win the NBA Finals. This team has crazy depth. They've got three all-star caliber players. They've got what I thought was the best player on planet Earth on the other side of this team. And this is Jimmy Butler with, frankly, scrubs. (laughs) Like, I don't want to dress this up. Like, this is a very undermanned Miami Heat team. They're undersized. They were not great in the regular season. They don't have a bevy of great defenders. They don't have a bevy of other great creators on this team. And they just slayed the freaking dragon, man. And not only is Jimmy outmanned in terms of having other guys on this uh, team that he can rely upon, in this game, the deck deck was stacked against Miami. Uh, 28 more free throws were shot by Milwaukee than Miami. Bam Adebayo fouls out. Kevin Love fouls out. Kyle Lowry fouls out. You have Cody freaking Zeller out there in the final stretch of this game. You have Max Struess out there in the final stretch of this game, man. I mean, 
This game is a testament to Jimmy Butler. This series is a testament to what Jimmy Butler is as a player. I mean, hand up. I said the Miami Heat weren't going to win another game after the Bucks took that one. And the Bucks didn't get another game. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is... I wasn't alive for the We Believe Warriors team that upset the 60-win well, Dallas Mavericks. No, you were alive. Well, no, I'm actually, not sure sorry, how old sorry. you think you are. I'm 12 years old. No, I was alive. Excuse me. I wasn't consciously watching basketball in 2007. The first series that I vividly remember watching was 2011 Mavs Heat. So I can't compare that to, you know, I can't compare that to that series, the last great upset that we had. This is the best upset that I've ever seen, man. Yeah. Um, and this is... Like I said, this is one of the best individual series that I've ever seen. When they needed Jimmy to come up big, he came up big. And I can't think of a better sequence. You're talking about great sequences here than Jimmy getting that steal, anticipating Mm -hmm. Middleton, throwing it back in, throwing it behind his body back into play. Then, on the other end, they lose the ball, and Jimmy's the first guy there to get to the rock. The... I've never seen anything like that, man. The anticipation from Jimmy was amazing, and I think that sequence wraps it up. You couple that with the great shot making down the stretch, man. Yeah, this is one of the best series I've ever seen from a superstar, and one of the, again, another great individual game from Jimmy Butler. I said, I think he is up there for the greatest competitor I've seen in any sport, and I think that that play epitomized it. I also think his sheer will, the the ability to finish that lob through contact, falling to the ground, I mean, just an insane display and then the consistent confidence that we see from him doing things that are not normal for regular season Jimmy right like the level that he has reached as a perimeter shot maker I know he was only three of ten in this one so not insane efficiency but there was that huge one to tie the game when they started running point bam which by the way I thought was a brilliant adjustment by Spo enabling Jimmy off ball like that you got him seven quick points off cuts and then off of that catch and shoot three but the confidence to step into that when this is a guy who takes two threes a night in the regular season and over the last couple years he was a bit better this season but is like a 28 percent guy from deep and then all of a sudden it's the playoff stage he shot 44 percent on five and a half threes a game in this series while dropping 38 a night obviously but just the versatility from him of the shot making. He can get by basically anyone with ease. And I thought that he showed that. And he gets into that painted area and then he's got the floater game. He's got the foul drawing ability. We know how great his mid-range pull-up jump shooting game was. And from beyond the arc, it was just in every single phase as a score. And then, of course, defensively, absolutely sensational stuff. And the Miami Heat, yet again, made more winning plays in this basketball game. And in this series, that is a huge difference because there is no question, not an iota of a doubt as to who is the more talented basketball team here. There are valleys between them. And that's why I think that this is the craziest upset I've ever seen. In a best of seven series, even with Giannis effectively missing three games, the Heat went out and they won these last two and they were down big and they were outplayed for most of both of them and Jimmy was incredible the other key is just the level of shooting that we saw from the Heat throughout this series this is the first game they dipped below 40% from three and they were still 38% they made 17 of them I thought Kevin Love was sensational as a floor spacer throughout this series he made five triples tonight and I will say I was disappointed by the Bucks perimeter defense and such a 
significant reason that I did think they could win the title was that they were the best defense in basketball, I felt, and have possibly three of the 10 best defenders in basketball. But I just thought, again, nobody could contain Jimmy at the point of attack. I thought that they were not sharp enough closing out on shooters. I thought that Giannis a few times was exposed for trying to play that free safety role a bit too much, trying to help too aggressively, because that's kind of all this team had. I mean, they were 27th and three-point percentage this year. You didn't think they were going to kill you shooting, but if it was going to be anything, right, what else are Gabe Vincent and Max Struess and Kevin Love going to do? They're not creating their own shots. They're not getting by you. They're literally just going to have to shoot the lights out, and they did repeatedly in this series. But it's as stark a talent deficit as I have ever seen in an upset. I mean, it is number one. And I think there's an argument to be made that this Miami team is up there for the least talented in the entire playoff field. I mean, after Jimmy and Bam, who again had some great playmaking and defensive moments in this game, no doubt, and finishes with his 20 points, was big on the glass, but not a consistent high-end offensive force. After those two, there is not a consistently good basketball player on this team. I mean, in this series, maybe there were, sure, Even then, I would say it was different guys stepping up in different moments. But the drop-off, I mean, Miami's third and fourth guys in this series are Gabe Vincent and Kevin Love. Milwaukee's are, take your pick of Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and Brooke Lopez. It is literally the gap between a buyout player and an undrafted player and all-star caliber guys. I've never seen anything like this. When you also add to the fact that, I mean, for most of this game, Brooke Lopez and Chris Middleton, and them, you know, they pulled their weight. Yes. Like, this is two great Brooke Lopez games yeah. where you're not even counting on Brooke Lopez to be, like, a swing factor in this game, man. I, yeah, I, I think I think you're right, dude. I Who was the best? Who was the third best player in this series, man? Kyle Lowry? Kevin Love? Probably K-Love for pure shooting value. I do. I think this is the greatest upset I've ever seen, bro. And it's the most unprecedented. I, I'm i still just kind of in shock, man. I'm, I'm in complete disbelief that this happened. And do you think Milwaukee takes any major, major adjustments into this offseason? Do you think Coach Bud could maybe be on the hot seat? Is that something you would explore? I absolutely would explore firing Coach Bud. I actually think that they probably should. I think take this in a new direction. Try to find somebody with some more offensive creativity, somebody who can actually win you a game in a situation like that. I mean, even the possession to go ahead in regulation where Middleton gets that blocking foul call, that's a bailout. They had no idea what they were doing. That possession had completely stagnated. It was Brooke 25 feet from the basket, Chris Middleton 25 feet from the basket, Giannis was down on the block, but didn't want to be involved, it seemed. And it was just like they were playing hot potato. So that is your responsibility as a coach to give your team some direction. And I thought he completely failed them in that respect. So that to me is the most logical change because I actually do like the makeup of this roster a lot still. I thought that we saw them make good midseason acquisitions with like Ingles and Crowder. I think that this is a dynamic shooting team. I think their top four is as good as anybody in the NBA. But they are getting older. I still do think, yeah, this is a roster that is very well composed. I thought this was a more talented roster than the title team. 
and yet this is an absolute collapse, and I think it falls on Giannis, it falls on Bud, I think it does fall on Drew for his shortcomings as a shot maker, 40% from the field, under 29% from three in this series, but I think largely you maintain this personnel. I think the personnel is solid. I mean, Logan, we only really saw two games of them this postseason, and they should have won both of them convincingly. They were up in both of them convincingly. It was just disastrous execution on their end and unbelievable stuff from Jimmy Butler. And the the last thing I want to say on Milwaukee and on Giannis too, Giannis, go to the free throw line, my man. I need you to do your best Mason Plumley impression. <laughs> Single-handed all day. Get that elbow straight. Get some touch, my man. I mean, get a bag. Get something. Because, one, it is not aesthetically pleasing as a basketball fan. It is still atrocious. And in a way, Carson, I don't know, man. This is... There's a little bit of play of the basketball gods here, man. I gotta feel like just a little bit, dude. Like, as punishment for... <laughs> for something, man. For Coach Bud not being a good coach, for Giannis just dropping his shoulder. Um, Giannis can be better too, man, and I can see him being a better closer. I hope he uses this to fuel the fire in the offseason because Giannis can be better. But I think it starts with developing a little touch and being better at the finesse part of the game, man, because it's still, you see in these late stages, is all brute force. I also do think he had to be better as a playmaker. I mean, three assists to seven turnovers. And I think the problem was he was getting stifled by Bam one-on-one. He wasn't drawing as much help as he's used to. And so the reads weren't there. But every single offense in NBA history, Logan stagnates in crunch time. And it becomes about, all right, who's going to go out there and just get me a bucket? And they should not have entrusted Giannis with that kind of responsibility possession to possession because it's a shortcoming he's always had. And to me, always will have in comparison to the other top-tier guys around the league. So as remarkable as that game was, Logan, there was another one giving it a run for its money all the way through. The Warriors come up with a huge road win in Game 5 against the Kings, now up 3-2 after being down 2 nothing. What did you think were the biggest keys for them in this one? This is Dubs basketball. Oh my God, I mean, yes. This is what I have waited for for so long for this to be realized with this unit. I mean, when the dubs are clicking, man, it's basketball beauty like nothing else, man. The the ball movement was just impeccable tonight in all ways. And I just thought, you know, you said it after the game. You went to um, at Chase Center. The guys just did their jobs, man. And I everybody played their roles, I thought, to the best of their abilities. This is not a great Steph game by any means, too. He goes 2 of 10 from behind the arc, and I just thought the other guys pulled their weight from Draymond Green, who was looking at the basket tonight and looking oh to God. score. It's amazing what happens when you do that, man. I just thought everything was clicking, and it was just so reliable for the dubs. Clay coming up with a massive game, having three big threes in the second quarter. Um... He has a big hit in the fourth quarter off of a screen. He has that crazy fade in the corner in the fourth quarter. You have Draymond and Looney dissecting the defense out of the short roll, hustling in this game, on the glass. You have Jordan Poole, who pulled his weight to an extent in the non-Steph Curry minutes, did enough, 10 points, 6 assists, was moving the ball well. Andrew Wiggins, who is just so quietly doing his job 
every night. Like, it's it's boring, it's typical, but this is Dubs Championship Basketball is what I felt like we were watching tonight. And granted, the Kings did not shoot well, but you got to give the Warriors credit, too, for playing their asses off defensively and hustling, too, from Draymond to Gary Payton the second two. Um, yeah, man, on the Warriors' side, I just felt like we saw this is what we banked on all season long. With all the questions that people had about their performances on the road, everybody did their damn job tonight. And big shout-out to Looney. Big shout-out to Draymond Green. Big shout-out Big shout out to Wiggins. Big shout-out to Clay. man. This was, this was Dove's basketball, man. It's beauty. It's ball movement. It's, it's basketball perfected. And it was a it was a beautiful game to watch, uh, even as a Kings fan, man. The Warriors just seemed like, outside of Steph having a nuclear game from behind the arc, they were firing on all cylinders, man. And this is a team that, I don't know, man, again, with the inconsistencies that we've seen from other teams across the league, man, this is something that I can expect night to night if the Warriors are hidden. And uh, I believe in it. So I was... I was very, very pleased with what we saw from the Warriors top to bottom in this game, man. The last two games, I think we've seen it. We've seen what we've been waiting for. They're clicking. They're humming offensively. And I think that this is a team that can win the title. I thought you said it perfectly, man. This is the epitome of Warriors basketball. This was such unselfish, fluid, great decision-making from just about everybody on the floor at all times. Looney and Dre dissecting the defense. If it was off the short roll, if it was out of the high post, if it was out of a handoff, constantly making the right reads, creating look for shooters or cutters. And I got to give credit to GP2, who I thought was phenomenal in that role. But you put up 123 points when you shoot 29% from deep. It means you made a lot of good decisions and you did a lot right. And I thought Steph, again, was great in that Inside the arc range, he did not have a particularly strong shooting night, but we've seen him thrive getting downhill in this series, getting at least to that floater range. Clay, it was a special display of shot making, and Andrew Wiggins with yet another really strong game offensively. But I agree. I thought this was a Draymond masterclass. I thought he was aggressive. He was physical as a driver. Sabonis had a tough time competing with that physicality. I don't think he expected it, and he finished well. He wasn't great from the line, but... Six of eight on twos is good. He knocked down that one corner three, which was off of a beautiful read from Looney. And at that point, I just thought, I mean, this is the pinnacle, man. Like when these two guys are playing together with this level of synergy, it's just an incredible top six that the dubs can put together. And GP2 and DiVincenzo, I mean, it's an incredible top eight. Those guys, as I've said before, also thrive in Warriors basketball, they're versatile as hell. They make really good decisions. They're going to defend at a high level. DiVincenzo's going to shoot well. GP2 is going to make up for his lack of willingness as a shooter with his athleticism and his cutting IQ. And they just fit, no pun intended, like gloves here. So I thought this was a great win for the Warriors. You and I have maintained the fact that they're the better team. I was worried with the Draymond suspension, but I think we've seen they have the higher two-way ceiling in their top six. Logan, believe it or not, just won them a championship, and I think their depth, all due respect to Otto Porter Jr., I don't think he's better than Dante. I love Dante. I think Dante makes winning plays, man. He had the eight-rebound, eight-assist showing in game three. We know what he's capable of as a shooter. So I thought this was a big-time signature kind of dubs win. What did you make of this? For the Kings. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I was waiting to, to rear its ugly head, and that's that 
the Kings are very dependent on the three ball too, dude. It looked like we were in for a track meet shootout. Kings are knocking down everything in the first quarter. They go eight of 12 in the first. Then they go two of 22, you know, since that. And the big thing that I think we can take away from this series, man, is De'Aaron Fox's cohorts are letting him down, man. I mean, Fox came out the gate firing too. It didn't look like his hand was affecting him uh, that much at all early. I think later it may have... You know, he may have heard it during a play or something like that, but he bangs those first three first threes. He hits that pull-up in Looney's mm-hmm. face. Um, at the end of the second quarter, he hits a floater, and I'm like, man, dude, I can't touch this guy. And all series long and in this game, too, I just felt like his teammates have let him down. DeMontis Sabonis being the first one that we can point the finger at. Look, Sabonis ends up with 21-10-4 in this game. A lot of those points are just coming from open mid-range looks and stuff like that. So Bonus's impact has not been felt the way it should be, and it's the Warriors playing him to defensive perfection. The little handoffs at the top of the key, Carson, are ineffective. Domas initiating anything from the top of the key has just been rendered ineffective. And what I think the Kings need to lean into and what they kind of got going later in the game is get him involved in high pick and roll with Monk or Fox. That is just, you know, you're forcing the big man to give a little more attention and you're just opening up that sliver of space that Domas might need. Make him be a short roll decision maker. Make him go to his left hand and finish. Get him involved in more pick and roll because the initiation at the top of the key is just not getting it done. But you look up and down at the rest of this roster, Carson, and I think you have to be disappointed at the level of play that you're getting from other guys. Malik Monk ends up with 21-5-3, had a very slow start to this game, was not shooting well from behind the arc. Kevin Herter has completely shit the bed in this series. Harrison Barnes has sucked. Davion Mitchell has been very limited offensively. And so I I just think that we've seen Star Foxy, man. Fox has done his job. Mm -hmm. Fox has balled out. He has been an all-NBA-level player in this series, and the guys around him have just not pulled their weight. Uh any way you paint it, and yeah, man, that's that's where I've just been let down by the rest of the Kings here, dude, and I think the Warriors have, have finally hit their stride, and the Kings have, have struggled. Like, they kept this thing close, shout out, uh, Fox and Monk turned it up as this game went along, but I think his teammates have just let him down, man. Fox has been elite, and uh, they've needed better Herder, they've needed better Sabonis, and they've needed Malik Monk to be a little more consistent. Those are the guys I point to, and they need Harrison Barnes to hit a damn shot, man. Like, come on, dude. Um, yeah, that, that's where I draw the line, man. I've been disappointed in everybody but De'Aaron Fox in this series. I think that that's mostly fair because Fox has been mostly pretty spectacular, but I will say if he has a higher-level shot-making in this fourth quarter, the Kings could have won this game. I mean, he was only of six with a turnover in the fourth, and so that was the rare spot where we've seen his difficult shot making his scoring ability leave him in this series because so many times it's felt like man this guy's this unstoppable downhill force but even if we do cut off a drive even if we do feel like we're playing him well he's just going to make this absurd floater or turnaround or pull up mid-range jumper and I mean the threes early were just another instance of that it's like how do you stop this guy and then there came to a point where he just couldn't rely on that in this one so I do think that was a swing factor this series isn't over but I would definitely be surprised if the Kings win. The reason I say it's not over, though, is because you're right. We largely haven't seen them reach their shooting ceiling in this series, and this was another off night. Although I will say part of it is not great shooters taking a majority of the looks. Fox goes 3 of 10. 
Davion Mitchell goes two of eight. Sabonis clangs his wide open three because you can leave that man, <laughs> give him a hundred feet. He's not going to want to shoot it. And eventually maybe he will, and he'll probably miss. So that definitely plays a role in that number being so low. I do still think, though, they have a lot of trouble containing Fox and Monk, which is the same thing that we saw to side games one and two. I thought Malik wasn't good from beyond the arc, but I did think he was getting to his floater range or getting to the rim pretty easily again in this one, and he takes 10 free throws because of it. But it was the beautiful offense of the Warriors, and it was also them, shout out particularly to a couple guys, securing those extra possessions, like, Kevon Looney has to be making his case for best rebounder in the game of basketball. He has 56 rebounds in the last three games, Logan. And over the last two years, I think he's one of the most improved players in the NBA with his rebounding growth and his decision-making growth. And then GP2, man, four offensive boards, such a great athlete, such great ball instincts, such great anticipation. So just so many heroes for the Warriors in this game, which is why it's a bit crazy that they still only won by seven when I felt like almost everybody played well. But I don't know. They're just humming right now, and they deserve this game, and I do think that they're going to go close this out, and then we got to start looking at them as legit contenders. And everybody's talked about the entire road thing, which has never really concerned me too much because I'm like, if we've seen them win four titles before, if we've seen them win big games on the road, you really think that they're not going to be able to turn it on? And obviously, games one and two were both super close, and they got this one. So huge win for them. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The other game that we saw out West, Grizzlies-Lakers was not quite as compelling. Grizzlies end up coming out with a decently convincing win. So what were your biggest takeaways from this, Logan? I think in this game, the big key to me 
Uh, understatement of the century, not as interesting. No, man, this is kind of a snooze fest. We've seen some good Lakers-Grizzlies yeah. games. I think the biggest difference for me in this game specifically was just the backcourt creation that we saw from Bain and Morant. And the Lakers just mm-hmm. don't have as valuable creators. Don't get me wrong, man. Reeves and D'Lo, when they're hitting, are pretty good. Reeves was a little bit off, was not hitting that mid-range shot, was not hitting those floaters. D'Lo... Seems like he disappears for 15 minutes at a time, and then, hey, those 30 seconds, you yeah. got a D-low. Oh, it's real nice. And he can swing a game that way. But when they're off, they're just a little off. Reeves goes 4 of 13. D-low goes 4 of 11. And then when you do turn to LeBron and he has a game like this where he goes 5 of 17 and is settling for that 3, you're going to be in trouble. In the playoffs, backcourt creation is extremely valuable. Half-court basketball is extremely valuable. And Desmond Bain and John Morant are special, special creators in the half court. Bain was getting to his spots. Bain was knocking down shots. Um, Bain is a deadly shooter. Him and Kennard lit it up in the first quarter. And, yeah, man, I mean, shout out D'Lo for being ice cold at points in this series. Fourth quarter of game four, the opening of the second half of this game. But the Lakers just don't have as as reliable perimeter creators as the Grizzlies, and I thought that was the big difference in this game, as well as just effort. And I hate pointing to effort mm-hmm. every single game. Uh, the, the rebounding advantage comes down to be very slim in the box score. It did not feel that way during this game. Grizzlies got a lot of second chances. Uh, we're eating on the glass. And the big thing to me, too, something that we haven't addressed, because we've talked about their effort, we've talked about the rebounding, The Lakers have to get back in transition on defense, period, point blank. The Grizzlies want to get out there. They want to get started quick. And even after a bucket is scored, it seems like the Lakers are like, hey, we scored. Let's celebrate. Let's have a little fiesta. Guys, go play defense on the other end because there's a lot of quick buckets that just get scored by Memphis where the Lakers just aren't really engaged. And uh, I think the Lakers have to turn more into the pick and roll when their offense stagnates, man. The offense... Their offense stagnates a lot more than these other teams in the playoffs, and it, it seems like they don't have a consistent identity. Guys, get into that pick and roll. Let your guys go to work. I felt like they turned away from it and stagnated a little more than usual. I'm not worried. I think the Lakers are the better team. I think they have a, fl- a switch that they can flip, but um, another game where they sleepwalk and their backcourt creators, uh, Memphis's that is, are just flat out better, man. I just want to see dialed in totally aggressive controlling the game LeBron because we have not seen him a single time this series Logan and I think that a lot of this game comes down to the fact that the Lakers really didn't play well at all outside of Anthony Davis but they were just hanging in there the Grizzlies hadn't thrown the knockout punch and then you have the absurd run 26 to 2 from the end of the third to the start of the fourth most of which happens with LeBron out when all of a sudden yeah you're relying a lot on the D'Lo and Schroeder creation and you're not running offense through AD and on the flip side they just had a bit of a lapse defensively jaw was getting easy penetration the Grizzlies were taking open threes you get a little much too much Troy Brown Jr. in there for the Lakers all of a sudden this game is almost over and then when it comes time to hey maybe rally just a bit maybe bring that last bit of hope into this game and the start of the fourth LeBron settles for a couple threes first two offensive possessions and Grizzlies get a couple buckets, game over. So I just need to see better LeBron. I totally believe that he's capable of controlling these games, but we've seen him play off ball a lot. 
as we've talked about, and we've seen him settle a ton. I mean, he's taking over seven threes a night. He's making one in every six of them, Logan. Like, it's inexcusably lazy and bad offense. I mean, he's not having the same pronounced playmaking impact because he's not consistently attacking the rim. We saw him do it when it mattered in game four, but we have not seen it for a four-quarter stretch in any game. And I think largely that's because he hasn't felt like he needs to, and he's been able to at times rely on Reeves and D'Lo to create good offense for this team and for AD to dominate the game defensively and get his as a score. But it wasn't there in this game. So I think that's what we're going to see from the Lakers. Maybe it changes next series. Maybe they take their intensity up a level, but it's a roller coaster. And a lot of it is dependent on how much effort they're giving, and I would say what level we've seen from LeBron, but the reality is they've been able to look great without us seeing great LeBron because we haven't seen great LeBron for a game, an entire game, once in this entire series. So I thought the Grizzlies' backcourt was great. At the same time, I don't know that it's going to be enough. I think we've seen the Grizzlies spot up challenges throughout this series. I mean, Dylan Brooks, again, could have shot them out of this game if the Lakers played better. He goes 3 of 15. And we haven't seen Triple J attacking mismatches in the same way that he was in Game 1. We haven't seen him going after everybody but AD and just getting into that post area, trusting his touch shots, trusting his physicality. So I do think that that's pretty important to raising the ceiling of this team because outside of that, you're looking at some ass shooting and not a lot of dynamic creators. So I still think LA is better comfortably. I think if they dial in, they have the higher defensive ceiling. We've seen how suffocating they can be. Their length, their rim protection. Schroeder is a good matchup for Jaw. And we know that they have this super reliable offensive creation if LeBron and AD are dialed in with really good complementary creation from Reeves and D'Lo when he's playing well and even Schroeder. And they've been largely a fine shooting team, but they were just off kind of in every respect in this one. Speaking of being off in every respect, Logan, the Cleveland Cavaliers went down meekly 4-1 to the New York Knicks. Let's honestly start with them because I thought this was a pretty ugly display. What do you take away from this for the Cavs? What does this say about their structure as a basketball team and where do they go from this series? I would talk about their the structure of their offense. I mean, the biggest thing is just how clogged it is and that's why, I don't know, man, a lot of people are talking about Donovan Mitchell and trying to draw conclusions from his as a, him as a complete offensive player. He's polarizing. He's an all-time bucket, I think. I'm not ready to judge him based off this situation because I think it's really tough, man. I mean, spacing is just hard. You've got three non-shooters on the court from your top five guys. Isaac Okoro, who has his moments, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen. Mobley is not comfortable even drifting out and shooting like that. Jared Allen is kind of a zero offensively outside of being a rim runner and a dunker in the dunker spot. And it's weird, too, because it's something that we didn't really address, I think, uh, in our predictions in previewing this series. Mm -hmm. It's a top-10 offense. We said, oh, Mitchell, Garland, the two trees here, Allen and Mobley. Oh, man, pick and roll. It should be easy. Well, when you have spacing issues like that in the half court with three non-shooters, and then off your bench, you don't really have any guys who can create their own shots outside of Karis LeVert, who's very inconsistent. Yeah, this is, this is going to happen. And so I think moving forward... I think Cleveland probably, for offensive schematic purposes, probably should move off of Jared Allen if, if they can. Yeah. Um, it's a decently sized contract. It's not the worst. And he is a valuable asset, too. Like, Jared Allen is a good five. 
I just think that for to maximize your offense, because you have two very special offensive talents in Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, I think to maximize those guys, I think you have to move off of Allen or Mobley, and you're not moving off of Mobley because Mobley's maybe one of the best defensive players on the planet. Shift him to the five, bulk him up, put a little weight on him, get his shot comfortable. You've got time. That's the thing here with Cleveland. This is a young unit. You give Mobley some time, you give him a year or two to uh, hone out his offensive game, make him that five, and bulk him up a little bit. And I think the Cavs are going to be set, man. I think they're going to be good to go. Uh, you have to be disappointed with them in this series, especially going down five. But again, a lot of this, too, I do put a little bit on the depth, Carson. But mm-hmm. I think this team was always limited when, yeah. again, three of your top five guys can't reliably space the floor and knock down shots and have very lim- very limited offensive games at this point. So, yeah, I'm disappointed, but this is a young Cavs core, and I think I think they'll be able to retool. And I think I that's to- what they should do. I totally agree with you on the having to move to Mobley at the five approach long-term. And, hey, it was fine. You gave him the training wheels for a couple years. He's a slim guy. He's not totally equipped to bang bodies. So you put him at the four, and you had a good option there in Jared Allen. But I just thought it was one of the things that killed him in this series, their overall lack of skill in the front court. You can't just put it on the two bigs. It's also the fact that most of their wings can't shoot. But in this game, I mean, their supporting guys did shoot well. Levert was 4 of 7 from deep. Chetty made a couple of triples. Isaac Okoro made a couple of triples. And yet this offense was brutally stagnant. And I think a large part of that is on the fact that nobody respects your two bigs offensively. They combined for 10 points tonight, Logan. So you're allowed to have Mitchell Robinson constantly parked in the paint, constantly as a helper, because your bigs demand no respect. So that then turns Garland and Mitchell into basically just pull up jump shooters. They were not attacking the paint enough. And I still think they should more because Mitchell, I mean, he was off from deep for a majority of this series. And by the way, we all praised him as this all-time playoff performer after the bubble run and the subsequent run, right? Because he was insanely productive and largely very efficient as a scorer. He also, though, shot 46% from deep across those two runs, which was always unsustainable on really high volume. And now his last two postseasons, he shot 25% from deep. And so his efficiency has come way down. His production has come way down. And I thought he needed to weaponize his athleticism more, get into the paint, and then playmake, right? Because we did see them find Mobley and Allen in the dunker spot. It's all they were really able to do in this series. But at least it's better than just, let me take 12 pull-up threes and I'll miss nine of them. Because it felt like that there was way too much of that from Donovan Mitchell. And overall, this offense just felt so stagnant. It was... Just pull-up jumper, pull-up jumper, pull-up jumper. They averaged the second-fewest passes per game. That felt very right to me, along with the eye test. So they've got a big problem. And there's a reason that we saw them go mostly to playing just one big at a time in the second half because, again, you're hurting your spacing. Mobley, I love him to death. He's one of my favorite prospects ever. Defensively, he's a marvel. Offensively, I would like to see more progression from him, more assertiveness, more of that skilled shot making. I thought he would be a more capable jump shooter at this point, but nevertheless, he's only in year two. But the bottom line is that these guys totally got outplayed by Mitchell Robinson in the physicality areas, the defensive areas. This game alone, Mitchell Robinson had 18 rebounds and three blocks. Over his last three games, Jared Allen Logan had 13 rebounds and two blocks. 
the guy got punked, man. I did not think he protected the rim at a high level. He certainly didn't rebound at a high level, and he didn't finish at a high level. I mean, I hate seeing a Jared Allen floater more than anything, and I think he took two in this game. So they also just didn't attack the glass bottom line, and that's why Josh Hart was more of a presence on the boards, and that was a huge swing factor in this series, Logan. There were three different games where the Knicks had 17 offensive rebounds. They were the number two offensive rebounding team in the regular season, and they're certainly the number one in the playoffs. And against a team that's playing two bigs, that's humiliating. And that was a huge factor. The other thing that we've talked about before, just the massive gap and impact role guys. I mean, for Cleveland, their third and fourth guys weren't even playing well, and their stars didn't play particularly well. But to have Josh Hart, who can win you a game on any night, Mitchell Robinson dominating the interior like that, Obi bringing energy and shooting and rebounding, quickly bringing shooting and playmaking. We didn't even see Quentin Grimes in this game. And then the last guy who deserves a massive shout-out is R.J. Barrett because we were tough on him through two games. It was bad, R.J. It was the hideous shot-making that he can be prone to. These last three games, dude, and especially this one, he has been under control. He's been getting to the rim using his athleticism, using his pace, his body control, and taking good shots within the flow of the offense. So I was super impressed with him. The thing for this Knicks team is, now that we know that they're drawing the heat, which I can't believe I'm saying, Julius Randle has aggravated his ankle injury, and it doesn't seem to be too bad, but how much does that matter for them in this upcoming matchup? I mean, I think it matters to an extent, and what's really sad about this is Randall was playing good in this game, man. I mean, he was driving hard he to the was. basket. He was setting his teammates up. He was rebounding well. He goes 13-4-6 and six in 16 minutes. I mean, this is the best Julius Randall we had seen all series. Again, I was very critical of him last game. Um, honestly, I mean, I still think the Knicks have the depth advantage, if I'm being honest. Like, I again, dude, I can't stress this enough, guys. Like, mm-hmm. The Heat were completely outmatched in that series, and I still think in the depth department, the Knicks are just better. I mean, you think about what they do well. They always bring effort and intensity. They're going to rebound well, which, again, I think Miami is kind of a little bit outmatched in terms of size and and guys on the glass. Um, Robinson and Hardenstein, I think, are great. You add in Obi. Carson, you talk about the rebounding advantage. They were plus 30 on the offensive glass in this series. That's unreal. There's a good defense that gives effort. Uh, I like their depth more. And they've got Jalen Brunson, who absolutely balled. So, I mean, like losing Julius Randle hurts, but I think they've got guys who can fill in. If it's Obi, if they go small and they add Quentin Grimes, um, wherever they go, I think they've got supplemental pieces, um, especially because you have a guy like Jalen Brunson. I mean, you look at the numbers, man. With Brunson... This team had an offensive rating of 113.6 without him on the court. And this may have changed after this game. These are the numbers from the first four games. Without Brunson, they have an offensive rating of basically 76. Brunson's that guy. The numbers might not be that impressive. 24-4-5 on 44-29-96 splits. But he can get downhill with ease every possession. He creates so many opportunities for his teammates. And in this series, they're plus 32 in Brunson minutes. That's plus six points per game. Like, I really like the Knicks in a lot of different categories, like I laid out, man. The only negative that scares me, Carson, and this is what I said coming into the playoffs, is their shooting. In this series, 43% from the field, 29% from deep. Randall, 24% from deep in this series. Barrett, 25. Quickly, 29. Topping, 35. Um, 
I think Grimes is at 11% through three games. So their shooting scares me in this upcoming series. Like, I mean, if Miami's got that torch on him, what are you going to do, dude? Like, if they're shooting like that, I'd expect him to beat any team. But I really like the Knicks in a lot of different categories, man. If Jalen Brunson's out there, dude, I give this Knicks team a chance to beat anybody on any given night, man. I mean that. The Knicks are just like that. I mean, they won this series in spite of Julius Randle. He was consistently abysmal. You're right, he came out strong in this game. But, I mean, could not make a jumper. 23% from deep, 14 a night. And we saw them finish out game four, right? Is that the one that they finished without Randle? So, yeah, without him on the court. They quite literally won in spite of him. That being said, I thought if they were going to draw the Bucks, they would probably need him. Because having two offensive creators at peak Julius Randle and peak Jalen Brunson level, I feel like you need that kind of firepower to win a series when you have like February Julius Randle, who's 27 a night, who's making his jump shots. But to beat the Heat, I think they have enough creation with Brunson at the helm. Their shot making isn't great, but I think it's fine. And these supporting guys, I really do think can step up. So I think since they're not at a talent deficit, they don't need him to win this series. And I think he would help, but... I'm not sure it's a slam dunk, like, especially as we've talked about, his jump shot comes in waves, and it's in a really, really bad stretch right now, and him in a high-volume role offensively can hurt you. So, I would pick the Knicks no matter what right now. Okay, let's move to yesterday's games, and we'll go more quickly through these, but we got to talk about Celtics-Hawks, because what an insane win that was for the Hawks, down in that fourth, come back, it's a disastrous demonstration of execution by Boston. It's a big-time Trey Young game. How concerned are you about this loss for the Celtics first? This is just the most Celtics thing ever, man. I'm not really concerned. Yep. I'm not really surprised. Up 13 with five minutes left, 109-96. You've got five turnovers in the fourth, a bad Tatum turnover. Hunter gets in the passing lane. You have a smart turnover. Trey gets in the passing lane. You have a smart illegal screen. This is what the Celtics do time to time. It's what cost them in the finals. It is the biggest red flag that you and I, Carson, have laid out all season long is that when I played baseball, man, when you made a mistake and you did something dumb, our coach would just look at us and he'd do this. That's called a brain fart. The Celtics are known for having a few brain farts late in games, and it's just it's kind of on brand, man. When they're on, they look like world beaters. They look unstoppable, and when... It's a little sweaty when you turn that pressure cooker up a little bit. Celtics can get a little sweaty, and this is what happens, especially when you have a star on the other end of the court that can get points in droves. Trey gets 16 in the fourth, two big threes off switches with bigs, and yeah, I you see some just defensive mistakes, some brain farts, bad turnovers on one end, and the other big thing about that finals run, and in big moments... Where is Jason Tatum? He scores his final points with six minutes left in this game. He only yep. goes for 19 points, settling for his jumper. Bad Tatum, a lot of turnovers, some bad defensive mistakes down the stretch. It's the perfect recipe that we've seen Boston cook up a lot. And so, no, I'm not surprised. No, I'm not really... Well, yeah, I guess I am marginally concerned because I can see Boston doing this against virtually any team that they play. Um mm -hmm. I'm not surprised. I'll put it at that. I still think they're going to take Atlanta out. And frankly, I'm disappointed. I wanted Boston to 4-0 them. I wanted them, after that big game where Atlanta's not missing, to 4-1 them. Give them a gentleman sweep because 
I don't know, man. It's going to reinstill my faith. It's going to fire me up. Yeah, these are the Boston Celtics I believe in. And what we saw tonight, these are the Boston Celtics that I consistently lose faith in. They are now, I think, without a question, the most talented team in the field. Milwaukee was probably the only one to give them a run for their money. And I think even still, I said that Boston was the most talented team. I just had a bit more faith in Giannis than I did in Jason Tatum. And look at how that went for me. But this is the scary thing about them. When they get into, let's settle for tough jumpers. We're going to turn the ball over. We're going to execute poorly in the final stretches of the game. It's the reason that they didn't win the title last year, I would argue. They were number 26 in terms of clutch offense last regular season, and then they were 13th out of 16 playoff teams in clutch offense. And quite literally, their games mostly swung with what Jason Tatum did we get. In their wins, he was generally great. In their losses, he was 39% from the field. He was 4.7 assists to 4.6 turnovers a game, and he was just like 22 a night. So when his shot left him from the perimeter and when his decision-making failed, they lost. And... Yeah, I mean, he wasn't even responsible for most of these possessions late, but he did not assert himself. He had that one terrible decision trying to pass out of the trap where DeAndre Hunter is literally actively jumping in the passing lane and he just throws it anyway. It's just, like you said, a brain fart. And they do have the tendency to do that. I do want to give credit to Trey because he started this season abysmally and was flat out outplayed by Derek White through two games. We got... Bad train almost every way. His finishing was bad. His decision-making was bad. His shooting was bad. He was heavily being affected by those rear-view contests from Derek White, who's a great shot-blocking guard, from Marcus Smart, from Jalen Brown. And he was relying too much, I thought, on his ability to just get by people who he couldn't get by, like these great defensive Boston guards. So he ended up taking a lot of really tough shots. But I thought this tray was the tray that you love to see. The tray was controlling the game completely out of the pick and roll. He created 77 points of offense. And part of that is the Hawks shot lights out 46% from deep. But it felt like every possession, almost, he's getting that free throw line area and he's just making a decision. Am I going to take my floater, which is his best shot? Am I going to kick out to a shooter? Am I going to find someone in the dunker spot? And it was that combined with the big-time pull-up jump shooting that you mentioned going after a couple of those switches late in the game. I mean, he was just great from deep, which at times his shot making has left him in this series, and that is a reality of Trey. He's not a great shot maker compared to a lot of the other stars. That's why his field goal percentage is always lower than the other stars. He only shot even 34% from deep this year. He's not a great finisher. He's not a super efficient pull-up jump shooter. But he has this control of the game, this pace out of the pick and roll, the ability to get to his spots and to create for others, and that's what we saw. And he's also just been driving a lot more. He had seven more drives per game in games three through five versus games one and two, so that made all the difference for this Hawks offense. And the one thing I will point out, Logan, Trey has been quite good in games three through five, but this was his best, and I do think a big part of that is he was enabled to control the game completely, and he had better shooting around him. And you know why that is? Because there's no DeJounte Murray on the floor. And I've said this before, I respect the Hawks' intention to go more all-in, to add a second creator that you think, hey, we need this guy to help take us over the top so we're not solely relying on Trey. But I think there's a reason they went from the number two offense when they had Kevin Herter, this great floor spacer, complimentary offensive piece, to the number seven offense and didn't get better as a team when they bring in DeJounte Murray, who theoretically you would say is more talented as a creator because it's not as good of a fit. And that's a limitation of Trey's, maybe that he doesn't, 
scale alongside other good creators like that. I also do think there are issues with DeJounte, though, in the fit. But it is a reality, and I think that this game showed us that reality, what he's capable of doing is that completely heliocentric engine. And it was a great trade game, but I still think Boston's going to win. I think Boston's going to win the East now. I mean, nobody can compete with their talent, so it's just going to be a matter of do they shoot themselves in the foot enough times. I'm with you. I think Boston's my favorite probably to get out of the East. And You don't have to say right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to wait. I mean... I really like I really like how Golden State played, man. If I can see that consistent Golden State, man, you know what, man, I'd be all in for a rerun of last year, dude. That was a blast. Mm. Um, I'd probably say Boston's my favorite tentatively right now. It's as open a conversation as we have quite literally ever seen. So it's going to be fun, man. All right, we'll touch quickly on these last two games. The Clippers got eliminated. Of course, without Kawhi or PG out there, they got a bit of a vintage rust 3-for-18 game. Give me your one-minute take on where they stand amid all this. The Clippers? Yeah. They're going to get a new stadium, and uh, you know Kawhi and PG are going to run it back next year. Uh, I think that I think the Clippers are, are just going to be at the— at the behest of Kawhi and Paul George's health, for lack of better term. I don't know how good of a fit Russ is going to be long-term alongside those guys. I think when those guys are out, he can step up and he can do his thing in very brief spurts. Um, and frankly, this team is talented enough offensively to do damage with any team when both of those guys are healthy. I think they yeah. need help defensively a little bit, but um, it's all going to hinge come playoff time if Paul George or Kawhi are healthy and they're not blowing this thing up. They're going to run it back for a few years. They have that brand new stadium coming um, and they want star power to fill that stadium. So if those guys are healthy, I'd give the Clippers a shot anytime they've got those two guys on the roster. Well, they want star power and they're missing their next four first rounders and the trade value for PG and Kawhi could not be lower than it is right now because neither one of them can stay healthy. If they could, I agree they could beat anybody, but they haven't up to this point. I do think you're absolutely right. They need to improve defensively. They need to improve on the wings. Rocco and Marcus Morris, you try to turn those contracts into legit, more playable guys in a playoff scenario who are going to defend and shoot consistently at a higher level. The point guard thing for them will always remain a question, but we've seen them turn out elite offenses without needing that commanding presence because their shooting can be good enough and the playmaking from Kawhi and PG collectively with their scoring dominance, just making those basic reads when you're playing five out or when you're playing four out with Zubots with really good shooting, it can create great offenses. And yeah, like we haven't seen it lead to a title, but guess what, Logan? I mean, we've seen it legitimately once. Once. <laughs> I think 2021, they easily could have won the West and maybe the title too. But that is the story of this team in this era, of course. Let's talk Suns. It was a grind. These games were probably a bit closer than you would think given the fact that Kawhi Leonard didn't play. But what do you take away for them from this series? Uh, there's a lot that scares me about this team. I mean, you have to talk about them blowing the lead um, in the fourth. Uh, Clippers are out hustling them on the glass. Uh, they're allowing wide open threes. Aiden's falling asleep sometimes. Uh, they're not getting back in transition and they're settling for perimeter jumpers. Uh, the good news is you have Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, two of the coldest buckets on planet Earth. Devin Booker is unstoppable, is unguardable. His pick and roll 
one of the best pick-and-roll scorers on the planet. I don't think the Donovan Mitchell and him conversation is really real anymore. No. Dude, Devin Booker's disgusting. If you guys want to watch one clip, the foot uh, the footwork on the play where he is trapped on the low block, spins halfway out, makes spins to his left side where it just looks like he's stuck and he bangs a tough, uh, a tough mid-range jumper. Book is nasty, and so, again, that's the redeeming thing. I'd like to see KD and Book get downhill more consistently in late game. That's how you produce consistent offense. You go to the line, you get points. I want to see them close out games more consistently. That's concerning. I don't know why the hell Damian Lee is playing. I don't know why the hell campaign is playing. Get your head out of your ass, Monty. Play guys that are effective. I'd rather see Warren and Terrence Ross um, just flat out. I think Damian Lee and campaign suck, and... Mm -hmm. Finally, DeAndre Ayton just kills me every game. I hate you, Ayton. I hate you, bruh. You kill me. I rewatched this game start to finish in its entirety, and I wrote down every bad shot that DeAndre Ayton took. Mm-hmm. Eight possessions where he's taking pull-up J's, catch-and-shoot middies, dumb post hooks. He airballed a spin J. He took an ugly spin hook. I really wrote... I, I wrote a frowny face next to every bad shot he took because it just upsets me so much. Aiden is still the most frustrating aspect of this Suns team, of this Suns offense. Those are eight possessions. That's 16 points where you could formulate any other better shot. And that's Aiden lowering his shoulder and going up for a layup and trying to get a foul. Those are eight possessions you effectively just give away. Um, Yeah, DeAndre Aiden frustrates me like no other player in the NBA today, man. Um, Point blank. I still believe in the Suns. Um, I believe... Let me rephrase that. I believe in Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I believe in the Suns, but I believe in D-Book and KD. Uh, it has not been a great series from them. I- I've been disappointed that they've not, you know, whooped that ass, for lack of a better term. I wanted them to walk the dog on L.A., and in very few games they did. Also, again, 90% of the Suns' points in this series have come from their starters uh, them getting fatigued and them getting tired and them not having a lot of bench creation still does scare me. Still the biggest red flag. Them not being able to play defense at a really high level yeah. scares me too, dude, just point blank. Uh, but I trust KD and I trust D-Book. I absolutely do as well, but this series certainly raised more questions than it did answers. And I had the Suns as my slight favorite out West. I actually think that I slightly prefer Denver. Now, it is a scary matchup because of the unconscious level of mid-range shot-making that we can get from this Suns duo, which I think is one of the best scoring tandems ever. I mean, Book was 37 a night on 70% true shooting in this series, Logan. He's one of the most versatile and just greatest scoring guards in the NBA today. I think he is the most versatile, and I think he has been for years. But that's scary against Jokic where you're going to be seeing a lot of drop. They're not going to want Jokic to get exposed for his slow-footedness. So when this team is making five more mid-range shots a game than anybody else, and they're shooting 50% from there, that's scary. The chess piece in all this, though, is that fifth guy for the Suns. Because outside of Torrey Craig, who was lights out from deep in this series, none of those other guys shot the ball well. And that makes it harder to keep this Nuggets defense honest because it means you can stick Jokic on a Josh Okogie or you can bring Aaron Gordon over to help more aggressively and have him leaving Okogie. So that's going to be a concern for this team because they're not a good spot-up team. They are so reliant on that pull-up jump shooting. 
and they really don't do anything well, <laughs> anything else well offensively, but they're so spe- special at that one thing that it might be enough. But I agree with you. Defensively, I don't think they're, first of all, inspired enough, feisty enough. I don't think they're quick enough. I don't think they're athletic enough. I don't think they're physical enough to make anybody uncomfortable. I thought this could be a good defense. I now think they are absolutely in the Denver tier of we're just going to fight to be a respectable kind of defense. And that's why I think both LA and the Warriors have higher ceilings because they can be great two-way teams. And there is no indication from Phoenix right now that they're capable of that. I mean, facing an offense down two stars, they were 12th of 16 teams in defensive rating. Russ shredded them too often just by being athletic. Norman Powell, quickness and pull-up jump shooting overall struggled to cover shooters. And nobody in terms of outside... I do think Okogie's a good point of attack defender, but overall there's a lot of weaknesses to be exploited with this team on that end. So that is probably my biggest takeaway, but the special shot making is also real. All right, keep going with the one-minute takeaways. The Timberwolves are done. They put up an admirable fight in games four and five, but they're done now. What do you think about where they're at? Ants the goat. You got to move off Cat or Gobert, I think, man. Either of those two guys. I don't think anybody's taking Gobert's mammoth contract, which means you probably have to move Cat. <sighs> Stick with Gobert as your five, which sucks for Ant because I just think it puts such a hard cap and ceiling on this offense and this team moving forward. You got to retool. You got to make some adjustments, and you got to go all in on Anthony Edwards. Um, yeah, I think this team's got a far way to go, and you've got to make some big adjustments in this offseason. That's kind of my big take for Minnesota, but I have complete and utter faith in Ant becoming uh, one of the top-notch superstars in the NBA. Agreed completely. I mean, unstoppable getting downhill, getting and finishing around the rim in this series, eight up free throws, pretty good pull-up jump shooting overall. The guy should be a scoring champ in this league. You don't see a lot of 21-year-olds when you look throughout NBA history have been as productive, as dominant on a playoff stage scoring the basketball as Anthony Edwards. But outside of that, yeah, there's not a ton to feel great about. Sucks that we didn't get to see Jaden McDaniels. Sucks that we didn't get to see Nas Reed, although he'll be a free agent. And I don't think they're moving that Gobert contract. Cat, it would be unfortunate because I like Cat. That's also going to be a tough contract to move. It's a mega extension. So we'll see. No matter what, I don't think they're recouping the value that they've already given up to build this core with the Gobert trade. But they have Anthony Edwards, man. And you know what? That's a shining star that you can hang your hat on for some time. Nuggets, quickly, how do you feel about what you saw from them and how they shape up in this whole Western Conference contender hierarchy? Yeah, I mean, when you get superstar Jamal Murray like this, man, nice 35-piece. Jokic and Murray are the best pick-and-roll duo in basketball, and it is going to be a tough guard every single night for Phoenix in the next round, dude. I mean, Denver, I don't want it to be a track meet because I don't know how much I trust Phoenix in a track meet. Their offense stagnates a little too much where Denver's just doesn't, and they also, I think, have better personnel defensively and have a slightly deeper roster with some role guys that I just Mm -hmm. trust a little more. I mean, I think Phoenix, with what we saw from them against LA, is going to have to play near-perfect basketball on their end to take Denver out. Do I think that can happen? Yes. Would I bet on it? No. I'm probably leaning Denver at this point. I just trust their guys a little bit more, and I trust their defense, even with Jokic at the five, a little bit more. So I'm liking Denver a lot, especially with what I've seen out of Jamal Murray, out of MPJ, and out of these role guys. Yeah, we'll break down that series in totality 
when we do our Friday night show reacting to those games. Then also that series will start Saturday. I mean, Denver was always going to win this series pretty comfortably. I think my biggest takeaways are just that they were able to win this game on a historically bad shooting night from Jokic, the worst shooting game of his playoff career, 8 of 29. He was still able to have an impact. I mean, dominant on the glass and big-time facilitating, as always. And he scored seven straight for them when they absolutely needed it. So it was timely stuff on an off night. But I agree with you. When Jamal's at this level, this could be the best spot-up shooting team in the league. I don't think anybody has an answer for the Jokic-Aaron Gordon two-man game. I mean, we saw Minnesota put Cat on him more, put Gobert in that help paint role. But I don't think that the Suns have ideal personnel I think that Aiden is going to get eaten alive by Jokic and I think that if you try to help he's just going to pick you apart as he always does so I trust this shooting I trust to me the best offensive player alive and I agree with you I mean first of all with the level that CP has been at as a shot maker and with Aiden's inconsistency in terms of his interior prowess you could argue that Denver has the better three and four and I definitely think they have the better five and six neither of these teams have good deep benches but the top six for Denver has been legit all year and is legit. And I also think that I'm leaning towards them in this series very slightly. And I will say, King of the World title is up for grabs with a couple of guys in the series. KD could go get it. Jokic could go get it. Obviously not in the series, but by the end of this playoff run. And I don't think that's overly reactionary. I mean, listen, people can talk about this only being a couple games for Giannis, but when you have glaring flaws in your game exposed like this on the most meaningful stage and you lose to a team you are 10 times more talented than, if somebody else goes out there and takes it, that's how it works. Giannis is not LeBron. Giannis does not have that de facto title every year. Giannis took that title when he won the title. And even then, I was a long resistor to the idea that Giannis is the best player in the world, literally because of the limitations that we saw today because Steph, Jokic, KD, these great all-around offensive creators don't have those limitations. And it came back to bite Giannis in this one. So there you have it, guys. Our first show for the volume. This was an insane night to make our debut, but tons of fun. So if you're watching on YouTube, really appreciate you guys. Hope you stick around and enjoy some more of our content. And if you're listening to the pod, then just know that you can now find us on the volume YouTube. So that is where all of our video content, the full episodes will be getting pushed out. At least follow us across social media. TikTok is at nerd sesh. Instagram is the same handle. And our Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. And with that, as always, thank you guys again. Shout out to everybody at the volume who made this possible. Incredibly honored and excited and grateful. And this was a blast. So I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's Pee Wee Championship game. 
A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.